You're listening to the Theosophia podcast curated by Kelsey Davis and Sarah Elizabeth Smith. Be sure to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com theosophia and consider supporting this labor of love project for women's empowerment. This week features the Reverend Chelsea Brooke Yarborough. Chelsea is a PhD candidate at Vanderbilt in homiletics and liturgics in the graduate department of religion. She's an ordained minister, a poet, an Enneagram enthusiast, and a lover of leadership development. Chelsea's motto is live to love and love to live each day. And she's excited to continue her journey of cultivating and engaging curiosity in all that she pursues. Chelsea is a dear friend and one of my favorite conversation partners. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation, and I can't wait to share her journey, creativity, and wisdom with all of you. Here's Chelsea. Hi, Chels. Hey, Kels. <laughs> um, welcome to Theosophia. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so you just, um, we've been chatting for a while before we started recording, and you just said a line to me that I think is pretty profound that I would love to just hear more thoughts about, that you are in process of trying to discover what it means um, to be a voice and not an echo. And so tell, tell me a little bit more about that and, um, and how you see that manifesting in your life. Yeah, um, so I feel like I'm on the tail end of what I'm calling a call crisis, but <laughs> it can be called many things. And I think it came because I felt so angry at the church and the academy but it was all these spaces I was feeling like led to be a part of and so I took some time away from both as much as I could seeing as they both pay my bills but um, to kind of breathe my way into a new understanding of self and as I started to kind of listen to what was making me so upset is that I felt like the shapes I was contorting my body in and my rhetoric in and my theology in and my understanding of what it means to be a scholar in were not my own mm. and that I was mimicking what I thought was excellent. And I hadn't even taken a moment to ask myself what my own definition of excellence was. And so when I say to be a voice, not an echo, it's not that we learn everything we know from others. So like, it's not that we don't emulate others in certain ways and that I don't carry voices with me but that I have to be willing to stand flat-footed in my own truth and in the sound of my own genuine in order to speak in such a way that it comes from me. And so it becomes Chelsea's uh, understanding of God and it becomes Chelsea's willingness to be vulnerable enough to express that in a public platform. But that, that doesn't become the end of the conversation because I'm not so rooted in what I said that I'm not willing to change. And so when I think about voice, I think about something that evolves over time. When I think about echo, I think of something that fades over time. Mm-hmm. If you think about an echo in like a cave, the first echo is really loud and then it fades, it fades, it fades. But I'm trying to get louder and louder. And so that's the development of voice as opposed to the development of being an echo, I think. Wow. That's profound stuff. Um, and, and I know that, that you are a teacher in the world right now where you are situated in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. And so 
so as you're learning and as you're teaching what it means to be a voice, mm. how is that resounding for you as teacher with your students? How are you helping them or, or walking with them to find their voice? Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that I've learned about pedagogy, particularly in the last like year and a half, is that if it's not dialogical, it's unethical, mm. at least for me. And so one of the things that I do in my first class, you know, class is always like syllabus day, um, is I've changed that in my own mind to teaching philosophy day, where I outline how I understand our class working, um, what I hope to accomplish, but I also leave holes in the syllabus um, intentionally, because my invitation to students is to consider what they might want to see or what they might envision. Um, and then I do it again in the midterm because my understanding is that when they learned a little more, they might have a little bit more to say. And so I try to create an environment where students aren't afraid to be wrong, um, but they're also not afraid to be right and mm -hmm. to be able to stand and be like, no, like this is actually what I believe about God. Um, I have found recently that students have a hard time claiming their theology during divinity school because it's in flux, like it's going all over the place and they're like, I don't want to say anything. So instead of saying what they believe and preaching and proclaiming from a space of their own truth, they quote people. Well, so-and-so says, and they attach it to a scripture and they call it preaching. Um, and so what I've been making my students do is write a faith credo which they're blown about. They're like, what is happening? I'm like, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? Who's the Holy Spirit? What do you believe about yourself? Like, what do you think you're doing and operating in this planet and et cetera, et cetera. And my, what I say before they do it, I said, I'm asking you what you believe in this moment, not what you'll believe in 10 minutes, not what you believe tomorrow, but what do you believe today? And I think that that exercise has freed people up from this idea that what I say right now has to be my forever claim. And so my hope in my teaching is that I give myself space to make errors. Um, and that, and I heard a colleague say this today, Lise Valle, she said, um, you know, I hope that if I harm a student, they're willing, they feel safe enough to say, ouch, so that I can grow too. And if we can create that space, then we might all develop our voices. Um, and we might all feel called to something that comes from our own being and not outside of ourselves. So I think that's my, my hope. And sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't, but I'm learning at least, I'm learning the practices that are important to that process. And one of them is naming up front that this is what we're doing here. Like my hope is that by the end of this class, you think something different. And it's not what I've told you to think. It's what you've heard yourself say inside your own mind and are now willing to bring to the forefront in a way you might not have been when we first sat down. Mm. It's powerful. What I, what I hear in that too um, is that you are helping to facilitate a space in the classroom where there's space between identity and ideology or identity mm. and theology, right? Because so often, um, at least in my experience, those two, those things get conflated. I am what I think, mm -hmm. right? Or I am what I even believe. Yeah. And so therefore, I latch on to those ideas or to those theologies and hold on to them with your life. Because if they go mm -hmm. away or they change, then what does that mean to my existence? Exactly. And so what, you're, what I hear you saying is mm. that you're trying to create some space 
to have a little bit more freedom between who I am and, and what do I think or what meaning am I making about God in the world and who I am mm-hmm. in the world so that there can be space for some flux and for some yeah. movement and lifeblood to come through. For sure. It's almost like um, engaging curiosity as a necessary part of faith and not an addendum and or antithetical to faith. It's like, no, like the curiosity and play and wondering is a necessary part of the work that you're doing. Um, So do it and give yourself Mm -hmm. space to evolve. And also in that, I want to name like evolve, your evolution doesn't always mean better. So you might evolve across time. And then a little bit later, which has certainly happened for me, be like, no, I need to reclaim some of that. (laughs) I need to go back and rethink some of these things that I've shifted away from. And so my like tagline lately has been like, I left church for a second to find God again. Mm. Um, And I left the academy to find my own brain again. Um, And so now that I feel back, I feel like a much more integrated self in that I'm willing to be both critical and confessional in both spaces mm-hmm. as opposed to critical in the academy and then only confessional at church. It's like, no, I, I sit in the intersection of both those spaces. And that to me is my vocational space to play in mm-hmm. is that intersection. And, and the both and is powerful with that, right? Yeah. Um, so will you unpack a little bit of your story of your, your coming and your leaving from the academy and church? I mean, how did you end up, where you are right now yeah I mean so hmm, my story is so long but (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll minimize it to this particular portion so um, the spring of my second year my advisor died uh, Dale Andrews and my advisor to my PhD program he passed away and from cancer and that was the first time that was the first time that God had failed me And um, Dale used to ask in his prophetic preaching class, like, when has God failed you? And, you know, so many people would be like, either they would have a laundry list or people would be like, God has never failed me. Like, God is God. God doesn't fail. And Dale would say, like, you know, really be really willing to think about this because you're preaching to people for whom God has failed. And it was in his death that I was like, oh, no, God failed me. And I felt like the church at large didn't have anything for me in the type of grief I was experiencing and the type of upheaval of like, oh God, I've done the things you said. Like, man, I preached the gospel. What you mean? Like, I'm so nice to people some days. <laughs> like, I, I do what I can to help. Like, how did this happen to me? Mind you, like this also happened to his kids and his wife and a whole entire community that was grieving. But in this moment, I was like in my own crisis, like, what is, like, why would you call me to a school where my, like, Dale was one of my heroes, like died, what the heck? So then um, I felt so off in the academy because I was like, what are we doing here? Like this superstar man who like mentored and loved on people and, created community is gone. And then there's like so many people who are just so uninterested in the formative work of their students that are just out here flourishing. And I got mad. And so I um, was supposed to head into my exams pretty immediately. This was June of 2017. Um, I didn't start my exams until September. Um, Didn't even start thinking about them. And then during exams, I was pretty jaded, but it was really after my exams into my proposal, which was April 
to November of 2018 that I did nothing. I was barely preaching. I was not going to church. I was not reading anything for school. I was just like, what is going on? Because I couldn't, there was no life in either of those places for me. And I realized that maybe it's not the places, maybe there's something happening in me I need to attend to. So I upped my counseling, shout out to counseling. But I also upped my quiet time. And when I say quiet time, I don't just mean prayer. I mean literally sitting in quiet and taking the time to hear my own things. And what I realized was that I was angry at God and hadn't been willing to say that. Um, I was disgusted at the practices that I was seeing in these different spaces and could not justify being there anymore until (laughs) I had a conversation with one of my students on a whim who said um, to me, your willingness to walk with me and not just talk at me makes me feel okay in my call. And I say that to say it was while I'm going through this huge crisis and thinking I'm like just spilling out horror to the world, I actually wasn't. And so I found that God doesn't just show up in the boom and in the mountaintop, but like God chills in the valley and on the hill on, and like on the side of the hill in the mountain climb. And I think that I learned in that season of my life, a God who wherever I am is there. So it's not just never leave me nor forsake me, but like legit, it's like still here, still chilling. And so instead of, instead of being like, well, why am I in this? Why am I in that? No, the, but I, the question changed and I asked myself, how do I be my most genuine self in the spaces that I feel called to, um, which is the church, which is the academy, which are other spaces that don't have titles, but how do I show up as my genuine self? And in that moment, I made a commitment to just be and to not simply do and I think that has made all the difference Mm. you just said so much Charles um and um for those who maybe don't know Dale Mm -hmm. will you share a little bit about about Dale for the world yeah so Dale P. Andrews he was a professor of homiletics and practical theology Um, his last appointment was at Vanderbilt um he wrote Black Practical Theology. He also wrote Practical Theology. Well, he edited Black Practical Theology and wrote Practical Theology for Black Churches. Um, but Dale was committed to seeing another understanding of the prophetic. Um, he was really committed to there not being a prophetic without a pastoral, and that there is a necessity of compassion and community and care to do this work that we sometimes trick ourselves into thinking as individual work. Um, For me personally, he mentored me when I didn't know I needed to be mentored um, and convinced me that I was a scholar before I believed it. I had applied to a PhD program, gotten in and showed up and still was like, I'm not a scholar. (laughs) Um, But what he showed me was that they didn't, he kept like, we didn't ask you to come here because we wanted to hear someone else's voice. We wanted your voice. And so him and I had a lot of really phenomenal conversations. Um, And even as he was very ill, still showed up. And so for me, Dale embodies a prophetic presence. Like Dale, he was larger than life in so many ways and was so unwilling to not challenge you and loved to play. (laughs) Like, I don't like to use the term devil's advocate, but loved to play like, here's a question that is super nitpicky, but it was generative. And so 
yeah, I just think that his presence in the academy, his presence in churches, his presence in the world um, was that of a force who learned how to be excellent and caring and just and challenging all at the same time. And like, yeah, my hope is that a bit of his legacy lives within me as I go into classrooms and such. But yeah, that's my little caveat of Dale Andrews. <laughs> oh, thank you. Dale, Dale was and is special. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's wonderful to to hear you and to see you and to have been a part of a small part of your journey for however long we've been friends. And yeah. To just see to see you come more and more into your authentic self mm. you know, and to still carry Dale with you. Um, it's really powerful stuff. And um, you said a word when you were talking about Dale, um, that you and Dale would have conversations a lot. And what I think is what's really interesting about that word conversation is that if we were to, to nerd alert and look up the Greek of homiletic, mm. the word homiletic, actually literally means conversation or sociable it's supposed to be mm-hmm. something that is opening us up to each other to be transformed by one another and so i i love the the thought of you and dale sort of sitting around you know sharing tea or a cup of coffee or walking through the hallways in in conversation literally as a mode of homiletic practice yes come Where on. here you are as his student in homiletics right and he's mm-hmm. this this amazing wise figure that's been in this field forever. And here you are, um, being converted by each other, being transformed mm-hmm. by each other in the art of conversation. And so, <clears throat> you know, homiletics is not just a pulpit event, right? It's not just for the pulpit. And Definitely our, not. Our <laughs> listeners can't see your face right now. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, Chels, what? What does homiletics mean to you? Yeah. What, what does it? homiletics mean to me? What is it? Um, so I have to feel like I have to pre-warn listeners and you <laughs> <laughs> because it's so in flux right now because I'm so immersed in my project, my dissertation. Um, but what is homiletics is the question that has produced my project because I just feel, I came into preaching during my MDiv at Wake Forest School of Divinity as a spoken word artist that was like, I'm definitely not a preacher that looks super whack, sounds whack. <laughs> Why would I do that in a church when I can be in a coffee shop with cooler people doing, <laughs> doing spoken <laughs> word? Right. <laughs> um, and my amazing homiletics professor, Veronis Miles, who now teaches at Wesley Theological Seminary, um, was just <laughs> so... Uh, aggressively patient with me and what I mean by that was like yeah you're a preacher but I'll let you come into it on your own and what I learned in her course was that so much of what I was doing in spoken word with playing with theology and uh, you know using satire to talk about the scriptures and just using these kind of creative lenses to twist and turn things were very easily translatable to the pulpit and so what happened for me in my MDiv was I was like, oh, maybe I am a preacher. Then I came to a PhD and I was like, wait a minute, I was already a preacher. Maybe I'm also a pulpit preacher. And so my dissertation is pushing me to consider what is preaching and why has it been defined by um, a piece of furniture that was never a part of 
Jesus story anyway. Mm. And um, so historically, I mean, the pulpit is, there's a lot of things going on with the pulpit, but it was really a mark of power. And so my question has been lately, like, what justifies the spoken word and what legitimizes the speaker? And if it's only this piece of furniture, no wonder the church is a hot mess. Mm. What in the world? And so my dissertation is looking at three women who did not stand behind pulpits, but were certainly preachers. Um, I will not disclose them right now, only because <laughs> I need to dig more deeply into them. <laughs> but um, in a three black women, that's important because there's something to me about the excluded always finding a way to do the thing. Mm. that needs to be done mm. when the included are posturing mm. and so is preaching about the image is it about the standing behind the pulpit and delivering eloquent rhetoric or is preaching about living a practice that every once in a while you proclaim and I think it's the latter mm. is that there is a lived practice that I do that is so good to me to use in my tradition is fire shut up in my bones that it would be foolish of me not to also talk about it but if I'm just talking about it, that's not prophetic. That's just radical rhetoric. And so, yeah, I'm trying to tease out. So what is homiletics to me? I think homiletics is the possibility of sacred discourse um, that opens up a conversation for folks to consider the ways in which they might be more whole and flourishing with themselves, God, and others. And I think anything less is just rhetoric. Mm. So good. <laughs> So good. Um, so you're talking about the, you know, I hear, I hear you articulating the embodied reality of preaching, of, of homiletics, that it is a lived, it is a lived event that then you're telling about. And so I wonder, Charles, with that, um, what is it, what does it mean then for you sort of theologically hmm. to, to consider the logos and the logos as, as, as the word, right, that then comes and becomes enfleshed. And, and we say that, you know, Jesus was the incarnate reality of the logos, who is a body who existed in real historical time and place and sweat, you know, poured on his skin, tears fell down his face. He touched real bodies in real time. So, so the logos as the word or the event of God becoming flesh mm-hmm. or preaching as as words spoken, right? What does it mean then for you to hear and play with the concept of logos as it relates to homiletics? Ah, that's how I feel about this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're tapping into my own logical considerations right now. So, <laughs> just trying to help with your dissertation. Yes, no, thank you. So, one of my recent wonderings is if Jesus came to point us to Jesus or if Jesus came to point us to God and we missed it. Mm. Um, and so I say that to say, like, I really, I really rock with the whole creation story. One of them, you know, where we came from the earth and were offered the breath of the divine as our being. So a part of me wonders is like, are we already operating as the word in flesh and just not utilizing our own power or is the power already happening? And that's why our world is so chaotic because we don't realize how much power we have. Mm. 
So one of the things I also teach field ed, one of the things I told my students that I hope they consider is I said, at some point you need to sit with yourself and ask yourself what words have become flesh that you got to get out of your flesh. Mm. Uh, because, and they might've come from you, but whoever they came from, I sincerely believe that, that we live as the spoken manifestation of God's creativity. Mm-hmm. And so therefore when we speak, or when we do, or whatever we use to communicate, because I don't want to highlight orality as the only form of communication, but whatever we use to communicate, we are, we are further creating using the breath of God. That is powerful shit. Sorry, sorry I don't know if you can guess what, like that is, okay. It's okay. That so much. Like, that is so heavy. Mm-hmm. So when I think about preaching, I want people to feel the weight of that. But I don't want you to just feel that on the pulpit. I want you to feel that in the target line. Mm. I want you to feel that when you're uh, walking down the street and someone looks at you and you choose to put your head down instead of smile. Or you don't have to smile if you have a terrible day, but you choose not to make eye contact because either you're afraid of being seen or you're afraid of what it looks like to see another. Like what, how do we live as actual human beings together in a way that does not disrupt the wholeness of creation that we are a part of? And so that was a super abstract way to answer your question. But I think that, I think that Jesus is so dope because Jesus was like, Hey, let me show you how I pray to God. Let me show you how God rocks out in me. Let me show you like all these things. Let me show you what it means to live and walk with God intimately. Well, you're subversive to normativity. You turn over tables, but you also like hang out with the homies and you also are blown when they fall asleep on you. And every once in a while you walk on water. (laughs) And Jesus kept pointing us to God, like to the end, to the last words, if you will. And we were like, let's follow Jesus. (laughs) It's like, yeah, follow Jesus to God. I don't know. I don't think we finished the, we don't fit. We didn't finish the sentence. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is what I think it, it, when I think of Logos, I, I really think of the ways in which we've distorted it and fragmented it to forget the, the real power within our very being. Mm, powerful. So what I hear in that too, the word, the word that I, I would use to maybe sum up what I just sort of theologically heard in what you were just sharing is, is, is authenticity. Mm. is is being authentic and honest to what is going on on our insides that's enfleshed in us like you said there are some words or mantras that are shaping us that are not helpful mm. that are not serving us or life-giving for us um like for me for example this this idea that came from somewhere that i have to achieve mm. in order to be worthy yeah. of love right like that is not a helpful word that I carry around that is in the rhetoric of my mind that is shaping my being and my doing, right? Mm-hmm. So authenticity would mean that I need to be honest about that. Yep. I need to own that and I, t- I need to proclaim it so that I can wash my hands of it. For sure. Right? And then in doing that, I, I create space for a new mantra to emerge that yes. is life-giving, right? That's what's so important, the constructive piece, the... the- the yeah. creating of the new mantra because you can't take that away and just leave nothing because mm. the void is not also is also not helpful mm. uh, 
I heard this great quote that was like, yeah, the truth will set you free, but not before you know what lie is holding you captive. And I heard that and I was like, dang, <laughs> get out my journal. It's but so, like, it's so true. You've, already, you've identified that as a thing that's, that, that doesn't have to be true. Mm. And it doesn't mean you don't achieve. It just means that your achievement and your worth are not working together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you're already worthy. You're already dope. And then you happen to have like hella accolades. <laughs> <That's> what's up? <laughs> <laughs> like medals in ish, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that's I I also hear in that Chels, and and you were one of the most communal people that I've ever met in my life. I mean, I wherever you are going, you are creating community. You are co-building spaces of belonging and belovedness always. And um, and so what I hear in that too is is wrestling with. What are these narratives? What are these mantras? What are these words that are shaping me um, that then I am in turn also sharing with the world? Um, that that is something to really be worked out in community. Mm. And whether that's in communion with the divine or that's in communion with actual other human beings or with the creative natural world. Yeah. Like I know you love the ocean and the sea, right? But it's, we are not in isolation in terms of this conversation. It has to be, like you said, dialogical. Yeah. So I wonder too, um, for you, you know, how do you find the space to be brave, to be able to be authentic and speak the lies or the truths or whatever you need to work through Mm -hmm. that stuff, to be a more empowered person in the world? Yeah. Where are you finding that? I'm glad you said finding and not yeah no 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 finding yeah yeah um yeah I think like so you know I'm a two on the Enneagram shout out to Enneagram folks (laughs) um and so my inclination is towards the other Mm. so what I had to learn was how to create community and remind myself I was in it so I'm not just like the space facilitator that then just gets to soak up energy and be like, I've helped the world, killed it. I have to be vulnerable enough because I'm also with a three wing. So I'm a helper with a performer wing. I have to be vulnerable enough to like show up with my messiness. And so one of the most more recent practices is I've, I've done um, is sharing my weight loss story on my Instagram. And folks, it was interesting because I was like terrified to do it for the longest. and I started doing it and just being like, hey, y'all. Like, literally, the first one was like, I'm struggling. <laughs> like, there was no victory in that. There was no, like, and I lost this one. There was no, it's like, I'm struggling, have been struggling with this for my entire life. The only thing that I can promise y'all is that I will, I will be accountable to a once a month post. And, like, honestly, my progress has been pretty whack because of my own decisions. But this is what it's done for me. It has forced me every month to ask myself, what is the truth? because I know how to be accountable to other people. I don't always know how to be accountable to myself. Then I realized (laughs) that that practice had become about image. Like I had performed the image of the vulnerable instead of actually being vulnerable enough to change. And so I think one of the big things for me and where I'm finding that that sense of courage really is a, a radical practice of truth with myself. Like, no, girl, you haven't lost weight because you like donuts. Like, don't make it deeper than it is. <laughs> At 
some point you're gonna like losing weight more than you like donuts but at this point <laughs> this is what it is um and to invite god in that process i realized that whatever i want to do in the world um whatever that means that i can't live my life without the practice of prayer and it looks like a lot of different things for me sometimes it's like you know the normative style of prayer sometimes it's walking and you know being silent sometimes it's watching people and being amazed at the intricacies of all that God can do and being reminded that certainly if all of us are created in the image of God however we depart from that along the way <laughs> if that's where we're created and I think in humanity inherently committed to certainly this moment will be okay that this too shall pass and that and so I, I name that to say that I think that I fight for hearing the sound of my own genuine in such a way that I know when I'm not living into it. So it's like, if, if most days I'm living into it and pushing myself when I'm not, it'll feel so uncomfortable that that becomes the norm that slides me back into my own voice. Um, and I also think having people around you that know my truth and that know my story, because I also think people, you just got to have you some friends that is like, yo, you being whack, like get your stuff together. Or that are like, wow, that was amazing. Because the people that will also tell me when I'm being whack, when they say that that's amazing, I believe them. And so those are my practices of finding wholeness because sometimes I miss where I'm fragmented. Sometimes my mirror is so clogged up with my own insecurities that I can't even see that I'm standing on the spot for which I was looking for it. Thanks so much, Chelsea, for coming on the pod and sharing your wisdom. So good to hear your voice and to learn from you, friend. Join us next week, y'all, for part two of Chelsea and Kelsey's conversation. And side note, as we close out, we decided to spend some more time curating resources on story sharing for y'all. So hold tight as we're going to put some good stuff on the website in the next couple weeks. We're so grateful for the timing of Chelsea coming on the pod to talk homiletics as a way of storytelling this week, but notice through the coming episodes as well that storytelling is the modality of which we're using to empower women's voices in theology and religion. As always, be sure to stay in touch with us on all of our social media platforms and visit our Patreon page and consider supporting the Theosophia podcast. See y'all next week. Peace. Peace.